Hello Skywatchers, thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Dara. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in January in our Cosmic Diary. Now when you're looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. So you should allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when you're stargazing. And if you are using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. The largest supermoon of 2018 falls on the 2nd of January, when the moon reaches its full moon phase whilst being at the closest point to the Earth in its orbit. It reaches full moon in the early hours of the 2nd, so the best time to catch the supermoon is on the evening of the 1st. Look to the east from around sunset to see the moon rise, or you could wait until the uh, pre-dawn hours of the 2nd when the moon will be setting in the west, and you'll see the moon in its full glory. Due to its apparent larger size and an optical illusion known as the moon illusion, it will appear noticeably bigger when near the horizon. Now after the Geminids meteor shower last month, we're treated to another strong meteor display in the new year. The Quadrantids is one of the best annular meteor showers and also the most consistent. It's visible between the 1st and the 10th of January, but peaks on the night of the 3rd and early morning of the 4th. Unfortunately, the moon is in its waning gibbous phase, so there will be considerable interference from moonlight, meaning that the peak rate of about 120 meteors per hour is much higher than you will actually see. Nevertheless, the meteors can be bright, some with bluish and yellowy-white colours, so look to the northeast after midnight. Following the Venus-Jupiter conjunction last November, on the 7th of January, you may be able to spot Jupiter in conjunction with Mars. A conjunction is the apparent meeting of astronomical objects in the sky. Look to the southeast before sunrise to spot the pair less than half a degree apart. Both are visible with just your eyes, Mars appearing a reddish colour, with Jupiter sitting just above being noticeably brighter. If you have a telescope to hand, you may be able to see details like the polar ice caps and dark regions on Mars' surface, and perhaps even the four closest moons around Jupiter, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. And keeping an eye over Jupiter and Mars in the coming nights, you'll find the waning crescent moon passing by them in the southeastern pre-dawn sky. From the 10th, you'll see the moon move past Jupiter, then Mars, and by the 13th, it will have passed by the bright red star Antares in the constellation of Scorpius. Antares translates as anti-Mars or rival of Mars. Now, since Mars and Antares can appear in the same part of the sky and both have a reddish hue, they can often get confused with one another. The moon reaches first quarter on the night of the 24th, an ideal time to look for craters on the moon. At this time, the boundary between the light and dark sides of the moon, known as the Terminator, is clearly visible, and it's here that the shadows from the crater walls will make them easier to spot. It will be in the constellation of Cetus, close to the bright star Menkar. This is a star that has evolved from the main sequence. It's no longer fusing hydrogen in its core. Once it has finished its helium and carbon burning phases, it will shed its outer layers, becoming a planetary nebula, just like our sun will do in about four and a half billion years. Just after midnight on the 27th, you'll find the waxing gibbous moon appearing beside the red star Aldebaran in the west, and the Pleiades will be close by too. Now the Pleiades is an open cluster of stars, and with your eyes you can spot seven bright points of light, hence they're often known as the Seven Sisters. 
Then, a few days later, the moon will reach its full moon phase again. On the evening of the 31st, catch the second supermoon of the month and also the blue moon. It's what astronomers call the second full moon occurring in the same month. Now, despite its name, it doesn't appear blue, but it's a rare occurrence which gives rise to the expression once in a blue moon. And remember, if you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them in to at ROGastronomers. And you can also enter your astrophotos to our Insight Astronomy Photographer of the Year competition, which begins very soon. You may also want to check out our Spacebook blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now, it's time for our Cosmic News. Okay, welcome to the Cosmic News part of our podcast. Uh, Every month we find two news stories that we think are particularly interesting, and then we invite you to vote on them in our Twitter poll. So, Dara, a new month, two new news stories. What have you got for me this time? To start off the new year, I've got a story headlined as a primordial steam bath on Mars. Um, now, this does sound a kind of, you know, a luxury spa retreat, hot steam, very relaxing, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about a very large outpouring of gas from its surface, uh, along with water coming out as steam, but also other volatile substances. So these are substances which uh, easily evaporate at normal temperatures. All of these outgassing from Mars's surface, creating a very steamy atmosphere. Now, I always thought this story was interesting when I found it because there's been so much in the news about whether water, liquid water, exists on Mars, whether that's now, whether that was in the past. And it's been suggested that either surface water or groundwater, so that below the surface of Mars, or even these huge hydrothermal vents that we have here on Earth today as well, Sometime in Mars's history, they probably existed. Um, The idea that Mars basically had a wet climate in the past. Now, what they've actually found is clay minerals on Mars. Uh, So this is clay that is found all over Mars's surface, but it's very patchy. So it's not every single place we find it, uh, but it isn't just clumped in one region either. And when we take the basic recipe for clay, well, you need to have rock. And if you add heat and water to that, you will turn that rock into clay. So having clay on Mars's surface actually suggests that there must have been liquid water sometime there in the past. But new research by planetary scientists at Brown University suggests that these clays actually formed before any liquid water ever flowed on Mars. So they formed during uh, the formation of Mars's crust. Isn't that completely out of the ordinary? How do we get clay without the presence of liquid water? That is very strange. So how they've explained this, well, before we have a look at how, uh, Mars's crust is the very uh, outermost layer of its uh, surface. So alike to the Earth, which is another rocky planet, Mars has a core at the centre, and it's mostly iron and nickel, like our core is. It's got a mantle above that, uh, very, very thick in its layers, very silicate rich, and it has other metals in there too, and it's a, a viscous kind of layer. And then the crust sits right on the top, going all the way around. It can be tens of kilometres thick. Um, and the crust is where the clay would have formed. So as Mars's crust formed, this clay would have formed too, before any liquid water flowed. 
So what they did to, to come up with this theory, they did lab experiments to kind of prove uh, how this theory might work. And they also used computer models to back it up. And I think that's what a lot of science is actually doing today. One of the really big challenges of astronomy is we can't go out there and get everything we want. We can't collect evidence and samples. And so we have to kind of use computer models to simulate and also run the huge scales of time that we have to do when we're thinking and, about And then compare to the few observations that we can actually make. Exactly. It's a very technical science, isn't it? Mm. So these rocky planets, like the Earth, were once covered by oceans of molten magma. So in the past, as these planets were forming, huge pieces of rock would have collided together, it would have been very hot, the surface wouldn't have cooled enough for it to be a solid. So as Mars's magma began to cool on the outside and it began to solidify, any water and other substances that were dissolved within that would have started outgassing, moving towards the surface and kind of almost boiling away to create that steamy atmosphere that we had around Mars. Um, and they actually think that was the hottest and the wettest that Mars probably ever was. And it's a stark comparison to what we think of Mars as now. The average temperature is about minus 60, so a, a frozen cold land. But back then, it probably was very hot and very wet as well. So you're saying that there was a brief time when there was basically an, a sauna on the entire surface of I Mars. I love that analogy, Greg, yeah. A, a massive sauna all around Mars. And when we talk about being the wettest, we're not necessarily talking about liquid water down the surface, but huge amounts of water vapour there nonetheless. So this moisture and heat and that high pressure steam as the gases were kind of coming out and gassing out from the surface as it cooled, that would have provided the necessary ingredients to form clay. So we go back to how clay was formed, you take rock, you add heat and water, and there you go, you turn that rock into clay. But over the next few billion years, uh, Mars would have had lots of volcanic activity, and we have that on the Earth still. And it's the Earth's way of trying to release its heat from the inside and cool itself down. Now, Mars isn't volcanically active anymore, but in the past it would have had lots of lava flowing out from volcanoes. That lava would have cooled over the clay and so covered it up. But it was also a time where there was lots of asteroid bombardment, so pieces of space rock colliding into Mars, and they would have excavated some of the areas and revealed some of the clay that was hiding underneath. And that explains why we have a patchy distribution of clay, why it's not found all over the surface of Mars, why it's kind of found sporadically. So this theory kind of puts together the observation that we see, but also comes up with a new way as to how that might have happened. What they've thought from this, actually, is they had uh, a sort of complication as such. There's a high amount of alteration that needs to go into turning a volcanic rock into a clay mineral. Um, and that high extent of changing or altering the minerals is something that they're unsure that surface weathering could produce. So the idea of this steam, steamy atmosphere. So basically they're asking, can the heat, steam and surface weathering change the volcanic rock significantly enough to turn it into clay minerals? And here's where they took the kind of test in the labs and the computer models to prove it. So they synthesized or created Martian rock. So as I mentioned, we can't go to Mars and, you know, pick up the rocks and bring them back. We haven't managed to do that yet. So synthesizing is recreating what that Martian rock would have been like. We know what it's like because we've had rovers go there, but we've also had pieces of Mars rock land on Earth as meteorites so we can analyze what those rocks are made of. 
What they did was they took the rock they created, that Martian basalt, and they exposed it to the temperatures and pressures that would have been present when that steamy atmosphere was around Mars. And what they saw after just two weeks was extensive changes. They saw that rock had actually changed into those clay minerals. So over the course of uh, what they think uh, Mars's magma surface would have been like for about 10 million years, so that's how long they think the magma ocean would have lasted for, it's enough to create up to three kilometers of clay. So that's what they've determined from their experiment. Now to see what would happen to the clay on the planet uh, over the course of time after that, uh, they created a computer model. So they took a slab of the Martian crust, that's the volcanic basalt rock. They then uh, simulated three kilometers of clay on top of that. And then they basically simulated the first billion years of Mars's geologic history. So that's all the volcanic activity it would have had, all the asteroid bombardments. And what they found is an outcome that showed clay was then distributed over the surface of Mars, very similar to what we see now. The idea that it's very patchy, uh, the relative amount of clay that we see on the surface, it all seemed to line up. Now, if this model is correct, it actually provides a way for clay to be formed on Mars in a cold and icy climate nonetheless. It's not a climate where you need it to be wet with liquid water. Here's a way that clay could have actually been formed in an icier past. And in fact, some of the best climate models of Mars actually suggest that temperatures were very close to freezing and any water flowing on the surface in its early past would have been quite uh, isolated or sporadic, that it wasn't everywhere so this kind of fits with that model and it also suggests that deposits of clay were and still may, may be present underneath Mars's surface so we see it there and it suggests that uh, it still could uh, have that level of clay underneath its surface it could also explain why Mars's crust is less dense than we expect it to be it's basaltic volcanic rock just like the earth's crust but our crust is more denser than the Martian crust. So adding clay into that would suggest why it's less dense than ours. And it also suggests that the clay deposits could serve as huge underground storage of water. We know that clay kind of uh, holds and soaks up yeah. lots of water. So while this magma, magma activity was going on, it could have actually released water from these clays. And perhaps that water would have provided a, a water supply to the surface. Um, and that has implications for past habit, uh, kind of, you know, uh, the idea that life could have existed on Mars. So there are huge, huge uh, implications if this model was correct. But the problem is it's not conclusive evidence. It's a really, really strong hypothesis. And it's something that they hope will be tested in future Mars exploration missions. Now, one of the ones that is coming up is the Mars 2020 mission yes, yes. Um, to find signs of habitability on Mars, explore the past conditions on the planet, search for signs of microbial life if it was there, and even collecting core samples from the rocks and also the soil and caching them away to help to bring them back in the future for future sample returns. Now, the design of this Mars 2020 mission is based on the successful Curiosity rover. So this is the one that arrived on Mars in 2012. It's still roaming around now 
Um, and it was really successful. So they're basing this new Mars 2020 rover and the entire mission on that. The intended launch date for the Mars 2020 rover is July, August 2020. So we've still got a couple of years to go. Uh, and it's at a time when the Earth and Mars are in relatively good position. So we'll see lots of Mars exploration missions probably being launched at the same time. And the arrival then is predicted for February of 2021. They hope the mission will continue for at least one Martian year, which is about 1.8 Earth years. Now, one of the things about this is uh, a land, the landing site of this rover, and it's been something that has been uh, evaluated over the past few years, and they're still working on where the landing site for this rover will be. So in 2015, they narrowed down 30 potential sites to eight, and uh, earlier in 2017, they narrowed down those eight sites to just three. So they now have three contenders where they want, want them to lie. And depending on where the NASA Mars 2020 rover lands, the researchers from this uh, piece of research actually hopeful that the right samples could be con uh, collected to actually help prove the theory that they have. Oh, fantastic. One of these sites is called the Jezero Crater. Uh, this crater, they think, was, or there's evidence that it was once filled with liquid water. It then drained away, but this has happened over two separate occasions. So it basically filled with water, drained away, filled with water, drained away. Um, and there's evidence that uh, once the, the lake was empty, uh, water would have carried some of the clay minerals around the surrounding area into the crater. And so those clay minerals are now kind of deposited at the bottom. But if there was liquid water in those craters, that liquid lake, there could have been microbial life there. And so once that lake had evaporated, perhaps the, the remains of that life are now deposited in that material at the bottom of the crater. Mm. So if this site is picked, perhaps we could find evidence to help prove the theory. So in summary, basically early Mars may not have been the temperate and wet kind of uh, climate that models might suggest instead a cold climate with little flowing water might actually uh, be the case but nevertheless the clay minerals that we see were still able to form without the need of liquid water and that's due to this thick steamy atmosphere or sauna as you put it uh, <laughs> that was created as the magma around the outside cooled to form the martian crust Oh, fantastic. I'll so, tell you what, three kilometres of clay, that's a lot of pots. That's a lot. I'm just thinking we need to go there, get some of that clay. Absolutely. So that's my news story for this month. Now, I hope you've got a cracker to please our audience for the new year as well. What have you gone for, for your cosmic news story for this month? You this month, Dara, have gone for something very, very close by. I on did. one of our closest planets well within our solar system. I've decided to go to the complete other extreme. I've gone with about as far away as you can get. Uh, I've got a record breaker for you. Go for it. Uh, it is the most distant black hole ever discovered in the universe. Wow. Okay. Uh, black holes. I know there are different types of black holes, right? That's right. So what Absolutely. type of black hole have we got here? So this is, a, this is a supermassive black hole. Okay. Big stars, massive stars, several times larger than our own sun, uh, end their lives in massive supernovae. And the cores of them, rather than being blown out into space, they collapse into what we call stellar mass black holes. Right. This is anything from a few times the mass of our sun, all the way up to about 30-odd times the mass of our sun. Something along those sort of lines. We rarely get any bigger than that, though. But we aren't talking about one of those. We're talking about a supermassive black hole. Yes, we are. And supermassive black holes are an entirely different beast. Uh, these are black holes... So again, still infinitesimally small objects, 
that this time have the mass anywhere between 100,000 and 10 billion times the mass of our sun. This is just really big numbers to comprehend. First Absolutely. of all, even thinking of the idea that all this material and mass is crammed into something infinitesimally small. Absolutely. But also then... The idea of hundreds of thousands of our star yep. being yeah, yeah. condensed into that amount. So, uh, 10 billion solar masses, 10 billion times the mass of our sun, is a reasonably, reasonably sizable galaxy. So it's an entire galaxy of stuff crammed into a tiny, tiny little space. Wow. Yes. Um, what's fantastic is there's actually one of these in our own galaxy. Uh, we, we think that they exist in pretty much the, the, the centres of every major galaxy, possibly every galaxy in the universe. We shouldn't be afraid of the one at our centre, though, should no, we? No, 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 no. So, although it's four million times the mass of our sun, so it's absolutely vast, it's also a really long way away. About 26,000 light years, or 26,000 times the, light, uh, the distance that light can travel in a year. So a really, really, really long distance away. Good. Nothing for us to be worried about. Now, these supermassive black holes are very, very important to our understanding of the universe. They're inextricably linked to the formation and the evolution of galaxies, and it's been an, a long, ongoing research topic in order to try to understand quite why. Uh, because although these things are absolutely massive, um, when they are, they tend to be in galaxies that are much, much, much bigger than that. So uh, if you find a large supermassive black hole, it tends to be in a very, very large galaxy. Okay. If you find a very small supermassive black hole, it tends to be in sort of a, a medium-sized or small galaxy, but still many, many times bigger. So there's no direct reason why the supermassive black hole, which is only a tiny fraction of the galaxy, should scale with the size of the galaxy. It doesn't really make sense unless they evolved together unless they were forming at the same time. I think there's a, a very big kind of just un disunderstanding of how they actually form. So the idea is they, they formed at a similar time, but we don't know whether the supermassive black hole formed first and then the galaxy, the galaxy around, it, around it, or, or the galaxy yeah, formed and then the supermassive yep, black absolutely. hole Absolutely. And we don't know quite how they evolved together. They must have, uh, have grown at the same sort of rate or something along those lines. Um, because this is another thing that we don't know about supermassive black holes. Uh, we don't know how they formed. They could be the leftovers of what are called population three stars, which is a technical term for the very, very earliest stars in our universe. Okay. So stars that are around now are called population one stars. The stars that came the generation before are called population two, and the earliest stars in the universe are called population three. So we're talking about grandkids, the adults, the grandparents. Yeah, something along those lines, okay. absolutely. And the earliest stars, these population three stars, we think were absolutely vast, many, 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 many times the mass of our sun. So when they blew up, they might well have produced quite large black holes at their centres. Another possibility is that entire clusters of stars in the early universe could have fallen into themselves and turned into one massive black hole, so lots and lots of little stars okay, combining together. Uh, or another possibility is that they formed directly from the Big Bang. Maybe they were basically always there, that they formed very, very early in, in our universe's history, um, and then the galaxies perhaps formed around okay. them or something along those lines. It's really not clear. Um, but what we do know is that they did not form at the same mass that they have today. They have to have grown. Okay. And that's a problem because there are only two or three ways that black holes can grow. 
They can either merge with other black holes. Um, they can swallow solid objects like stars and planets, but that's very, very slow and very, very rare. Or, and we think this is the dominant one, they can just sort of feed off gas and dust throughout the rest of their galaxy. The problem with that is that that has a speed limit. There's a, a, there's a limit to the all-you-can-eat buffet in the middle of our galaxy. Um, and that's because as stuff is thrown onto a black hole, although black holes themselves can't produce any light, uh, when that stuff is thrown onto it, it heats up, produces lots of light of its own. And believe it or not, light can actually push stuff out of the way. It's called radiation pressure. Right. So the more stuff is thrown onto the black hole, the more light is produced, and the more the stuff that's being thrown on is pushed away by the light it's producing. The, what this means is, if you want to produce a massive black hole like the ones that we see today, you have to either produce a very large seed black hole when the black hole is formed, and then only grow it a little bit, which can happen in a short period of time. Okay. Or you produce a smaller black hole, but then you have to allow much, much longer for the black, ho black hole to grow. People have been searching for these supermassive black holes as far back in the universe as possible in order to try to determine whether it's a large black hole grown quickly, quickly or a, a small, small black one. hole grown over a much longer period Now, when of you time. say looking back as far as they can, that's because the further away we look, the further back in time, essentially, we're looking. So exactly. we're trying to get to the very earliest stages to see Absolutely, what happens. Absolutely, yes. So the search has been on for more of these supermassive black holes. I'm excited holes. already, Greg. I know, absolutely. Um, and I said already that when these black holes feed, they produce loads of light. This turns them into what we call an active galactic nucleus or a quasar. And it's thought that at the distances these astronomers are looking, there are only about 20 to 100 of them across the entire sky. This is a tiny, tiny number. But it's worse than that because the objects that they're looking for are extremely faint because they're so very, very far away. And they unfortunately look almost exactly like objects within our own uh, galaxy called brown dwarfs. They're, they're very, very different. Very, very different. But because they're so far away, because they they're so faint, the because they're so red, they look like these brown dwarfs, which are very, very common in our own galaxy. So not only is it tough for them to just simply find them, once they've found one that might be right, they have to work out if it whether is it's actually... actually what they're hoping to see. So uh, enter our new supermassive black hole. It has the extremely catchy name, and I'm going to try and get this right, <clears throat> ULAS J134208.10 plus 092838.61. That either sounds like uh, a barcode or a really long number plate on a car. Yeah, absolutely. So the long string of numbers is just the coordinates of the object in the sky. Uh, ULAS, however, stands for the UKIDS Large Area Survey, which is a study of a wide area of the sky in order to um, try to find these objects. So it's about 29 billion light years away, and the light from it has been traveling towards us for about 13 billion years. Now you might notice there's a bit of a mismatch there, mm -hmm. because the light year is the distance that light can travel in a year. So how can it be 29 billion light years away, and yet the light only be traveling for about 13 billion years? And the reason is that our universe is expanding. Now, I tried to think of an analogy for this, and what I came up with, you, this, this may work, this may not, is an Olympic sprinter, say okay. Usain Bolt, 
uh, running on a 100-meter track that's made of elastic. Okay. So he starts running when the track is 100 meters long. He starts running, goes as far as uh, towards the other end. And as he does so, someone grabs onto the start line and pulls it backwards. And what happens is, Usain Bolt, first of all, he has to run slightly further than 100 meters. Because in the time that he runs the 100 meters, the track has he's running along has got longer. But when he gets to the end and looks back, the start of the track could be 200, 300 metres away because the track has been pulled away. Now, the track represents the expanding universe. Absolutely. And the Usain Bolt in this particular case is the light. So in this particular case, let's just say that uh, he actually had to run 130 metres and the track is now 290 metres long. And that would be exactly the same as our 29 billion light years and the 13 billion years that it's been travelling to traveling. us. So that's the situation that we now, have. 29 billion light years away, that's incredibly far. Yeah. There's, there's not, you can't go much further away before uh, you can't actually see anymore because uh, the Big Bang occurred not long before that, only about 700 million years before that. And so uh, light simply hasn't had enough time to reach us yet from that part of the universe. Uh, the universe just hasn't been around long enough. So this really is one of the most distant, if not the most distant, supermassive black hole. Uh, it's the most distant that we've discovered, absolutely, yes. Um, and the black hole itself, we know, is about 800 million times the mass of our sun. Wow. Yep, so it's very, very big, now compare which is a problem. To the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy? Which is only 4 million, yes. Well, so our galaxy has a slightly undermassive black hole. It should be bigger. We're not entirely certain why it isn't, but Still. for some reason that's the case. Um, but the fact that we found one which is 800 million times the mass of our sun this early in the universe is a problem because... By some methods, by some theories, it hasn't had enough time to grow. Right. Which is weird. So does are you saying it doesn't quite fit the two different things that you told us earlier on? The idea that it has to it's either a large massive black hole to start off with and then accrete slowly, or vice versa. Well, but this is thing. even bigger than we expect. Well, so unfortunately, even this doesn't rule out either of those possibilities. There's enough give in both of the possibilities for both it's to, to still be, be plausible. true. Okay. But it makes the making small black holes more and more difficult because there just isn't enough time for it to feed to get up to the size that we see. But we can do even more than that. I said that it's producing a huge amount of light because it's constantly feeding. It's one of these quasars. That means we can have a look at the host galaxy. The light is passing through the host galaxy, and as it does so, the host galaxy leaves an imprint on this light, okay. which we can look at the spectrum of, because splitting all the light into its different colours. And what we find um, is that there is a huge amount of what's called dust and metals in the host galaxy. Now, when the Big Bang occurred, it produced only hydrogen and helium little bit of lithium, uh, which is the same thing that goes into batteries so nowadays. So we're not talking about heavy metals here. It nope. would have been very light Absolutely. elements. Now, as far as astronomers are concerned, the word metal is used for anything that isn't hydrogen or helium. Um, so things like carbon, oxygen, and yes, iron are considered, are considered metals. metals. Um, so when we say that there are a lot of metals, that means that this galaxy has to have somehow produced all of these 
heavier elements. And the only way it can do that is by going through generations of stars. Stars produce all of the metals, or when they explode, they produce yet more. And it being this early in the universe, that's also kind of weird that it doesn't quite fit. It's still possible, uh, it's still plausible, but it's strange. It's so a it's also really messy that stars existed that soon after the Big Bang oh, as they, well. they definitely did. I mean, we know that stars certainly existed before that, but what's more interesting is that um, not only must stars have existed, they must have existed, blown up to throw all of that stuff that they produced out into the rest of the universe, out into the rest of the galaxy, and then formed a new generation of stars from that. In that in time. In order to be able to... Yeah, absolutely. In 790 million years. Sorry, 700 million years. Which is... No time at all, as far as the, the universe is concerned. It's less than 5% of the entire total age of the universe. So right, far. Greg, this feels like a really big murder mystery. <laughs> like, every level we get to, you're giving me more and more and more. Absolutely. Are we going to find an end Unfortunately, to this? we are not going to answer oh. any questions today. Quite the mystery. Um, and one that, along with the origin of these supermassive black holes, we're not going to find the answer of today. But... Every new supermassive black hole we find, every new object we find in the distant universe tells us a little bit more. We're filling in the pieces. Maybe soon, maybe, we might eventually have some answers. This is what I absolutely love about astronomy. You've hit the nail right on the head here. You've given me more and more and more, and we get to the end, and we still have questions to answer. And that's the bit that we want to carry on with. We want to find more, and we want to get a real grasp on what's happening. I think you've picked a cracker of a story this month, but we are going to put it to the test on Twitter. Um, we do want you to vote for your favourite news story of this month. So we're talking about the primordial steam bath or sauna on Mars or the most distant supermassive black hole that we found. Now, in terms of last month's poll, we had two stories. So we had 100 years since the first discovery of exoplanets and also an undying star with its repeating supernova. We had 14 votes in total. 36% of you voted for 100 years since the first discovery of exoplanets. So the winning story for December was the undying star with its repeating supernova, where we got 64% of the votes. So as we mentioned, we're going to put our stories for this month for January on Twitter. We want you to vote for your favourites. So that's all for this month. Uh, We hope you can join us again next month for more from Look Up.